Hi, welcome back to another episode of Marsh to Soul Nicole. So as we know, we are on this very exciting series called The Created and the Creator. And I have Laura here with me. And in the past few episodes, it's been quite interesting. I think we started out in terms of what was the relationship between poetry and the spiritual life. We talked about some of my most favorite poets. I think the poets that have touched us, the poets that have moved us. And just last week, we actually went into our first two poems, The Summer Day by Mary Oliver and Unutterable Name by David White. So Laura is here, right, uh, back with me recording on this particular series, and maybe she can take us through a recap of what we went through last week when we were looking at those two poems. Hi, uh, I think to recap last week, um, both poems by Mary Oliver and David White talked about the natural world and the experience of the divine in nature. Uh, I'm sure there's something Franciscan in there, but uh, I've not read enough of like Laudato Si or other Franciscan writings to come in. Uh, what about you, Nicole? Uh, I know you're doing something on Franciscan prayer right now, right? Yeah, yeah, I am. I am. Thank, thanks for <laughs> reminding me about, I think I was doing a book study actually about what it means to, I think, to pray in a Franciscan way. And I think uh, St. Francis, I think he really spent a lot of time uh, in nature, he talked about, you know, the sun as his brother, you know, for example, and the moon as his sister. And he has a very strong, I think, connection uh, to nature and to the natural world. I think we've probably seen like pictures of him with like animals, right? Uh, seated mm-hmm. around him and like listening to his sermon. And I think that was really what we evoked in last week's two poems, right? I think we really saw from the lens, I think, of the natural world and the created world as it is. So yeah, I think that's uh, my little two cents worth, I think, of Francisco's spirituality also in that sense. Nice. What, uh, so this week we've got, uh, what was it? Louise Gluck, Celestial Music, and Second Sight by David White. What do you think the, what would you say that our theme this week would be then? I was actually quite like interested, I think, looking at like these two poems like side by side because I was actually taken up with mm-hmm. Celestial Music because it's about a friend, right? Um, relaying, I think, you know, what faith means to her. And for Second Sight for David White, I think it's also about perspective, you know, looking at things with the eyes of faith, right? Because we look at things very differently. I think when faith uh, suffuses mm-hmm. our yeah, perspective. And for me, that's what I kind of took away from both. So like that idea of perspective and looking at things from that very, very interesting, actually very broad perspective of like what faith is. So, but how about you, Laura? What did you take away? It's like a yeah, like yeah. A I love that. I love the word perspective. Yeah, that I think definitely I agree with you. Um, for me, I think like the first thing I thought was the experience of life as the beloved. Uh, to borrow from Henry Nouwen's title, right? Um in a very loose fashion. I think both poems are an invitation to see how differently life looks when you are the beloved, when you live life as one who has faith, right? And really, like like you say, the transformative power of faith and how that transforms our perspective. I think that's, yeah, I think that's very beautiful. I think that that idea of like transformation, right? Because I think, yeah, sometimes uh, you know, the, the idea of faith is, is, is very interesting and it's very multifaceted, but to be transformed by it also requires some sort of like internal change, right? Some kind of process that's taking place. And I think that's really come, is actually brought to bear in, in the two poems. Maybe you can give us also a little bit of context about uh, Louise Gluck, I think, who, who okay. is very talented, uh... definitely, yeah. 
Okay, so Louise Gluck is an American poet who just won the Nobel Prize for Poetry in 2020. Uh, I've not read a lot of her poetry, but from what I've seen, it is often quite somber and haunting in tone. And her poetic voice tends to be very conversational. So there's a certain intimacy that has led some readers to term her work as confessional. Uh, but I also don't know if that's really an accurate title because her work is also very cutly, cuttingly incisive in how she approaches or questions things. Like she draws patterns, makes references to other texts. Um, it's the work of somebody who really accesses the world through her intellect rather than her heart. So I wouldn't say she's a conventional, confessional poet. Yeah, uh, I liked this, uh, this poem, Celestial Music, because it, so it brings that searing intellect of the narrator up against a, a wall that she's struggling with as she struggles to understand her friend's faith. So I'll just read the poem out. I have a friend who still believes in heaven, not a stupid person, yet with all she knows, she literally talks to God. She thinks someone listens in heaven. On earth, she's unusually competent, brave too, able to face unpleasantness. We found a caterpillar dying in the dirt, greedy ants crawling over it. I'm always moved by disaster, always eager to oppose vitality, but timid also, quick to shut my eyes. Whereas my friend was able to watch, to let events play out according to nature. For my sake, she intervened, brushing a few ants off the torn thing and set it down across the road. My friend says I shut my eyes to God, that nothing else explains my aversion to reality. She says I'm like the child who buries her head in the pillow so as not to see, the child who tells herself that light causes sadness. My friend is like the mother, patient, urging me to wake up an adult like herself, a courageous person. In my dreams, my friend reproaches me. We're walking on the same road, except it's winter now. She's telling me that when you love the world, you hear celestial music. Look up, she says. When I look up, nothing. Only clouds, snow, a white business in the trees, like brights leaping to a great height. Then I'm afraid for her. I see her caught in a net deliberately cast over the earth. In reality, we sit by the side of the road, watching the sunset. From time to time, the silence pierced by a bird call. It's this moment we're trying to explain, the fact that we are at ease with death, with solitude. My friend draws a circle in the dirt. Inside, the caterpillar doesn't move. She's always trying to make something whole, something beautiful, an image capable of life apart from her. We're very quiet. It's peaceful sitting here, not speaking. The composition fixed, the road suddenly turning dark, the air going cool, here and there, the rocks shining and glittering. It's the stillness we both love. The love of form is a love of endings. Yeah, it's very beautiful. Yeah, it's very beautiful. We're moving. I really, really like the perspective of the friend, you know, she observing the friend and just really kind of like catching mm -hmm. a glimpse of what faith is. But maybe you can yeah. Yeah, go into a little bit of what really 
like resonated with you from this poem? Yeah, I think for me, what really, really like resonated was the difference that faith makes. I think there's this unexpected inversion actually. Like it's the faithful friend who is competent and brave and not presented as like a delusional um person. It's the non-believing narrator who is the frightened one, who's avoidant of reality. Because I feel like so much of modern media loves to portray Christians as like happy, happy people, right? With a very naive view of the world and very delusional how it, and not understanding how the world works. But her friend here is intelligent, is imaginative, and is allied with a power that she's trying to comprehend. Um, but let's talk about the narrator's voice first, the narrator persona first. Because uh, I think that um, the difference is really stark. And... First of all, she describes herself as someone who's always moved by disaster, but timid also, quick to shut her eyes. And I think in the case of this poem, this behavior is borne out by the caterpillar, which is the central image, right? And like, let's talk about the caterpillar for a minute, because um, what is the cap- caterpillar, right? It's really like a thing that has not yet, not yet reached its full potential. And I think there's a sense of a sudden loss when you talk about the caterpillar dying, it never got to reach its butterfly stage. And also there's a, bit, a subtle violence to the image of this young creature being torn apart by greedy ants, right? Although actually if you zoom out, if you think about it, it's arguably quite a natural occurrence. Like death happens, creatures like ants help process decaying matter before it's returned to the earth. It's all just part like, of the cycle of life. So I think her choice to take something so commonplace and so cyclical and to render it so disturbing and almost sinister, like she describes it as a torn creature, as something so, there's something very graphic about that, right? It shows like the sensitivity of the persona's mind, and it's really like a mind rent open by, by the idea that tragedy could be waiting around the corner. Uh, the banality of tragedy, right? It awaits, awaits us everywhere. And if we really stop and take it all in, it's a wonder that we keep going at all. And I think, when you look at life that way, it's no wonder that all she wants to do is to shut her eyes against a world full of death and unpleasantness and tragedy. And in contrast, it's her friend who is unable to face unpleasantness, to watch with open eyes and let things unfold, as she says. And so I think that's, um, that's, the, that's the first point I wanted to make, that that's what real faith does. It doesn't inure you to the unpleasantness of the world. You're not on like some open, opiate or something, it's not an opiate of the masses, um, that the rest of the secular world loves to dismiss it as so. I think if we talk about our Christian faith, the crucifixion at the heart of our faith is a tremendous horror in and of itself, right? So how, um, what redeems the horror, whether it's writ great like Good Friday or writ small like this caterpillar, is, the, is that we all believe in new life, new life to come. And it's because of that belief in the resurrection and the promise of new life that we're able to accept death and trouble and with this, in this world. Uh, and like the friend, we're able to accept it with a quiet perseverance and a sort of um, courageous acceptance. We're able to hold on to both like sorrow and joy. Yeah. What, what do you think about that? I think that's a very, very, very sensitive thing, like analysis, I think, of the poem, right? Especially, I think, about the part that you talked about, the unpleasantness and the tragedy. Because mm-hmm. I think, yeah, you know, like a lot of, it, I really identify with the happy, clappy uh, Christian idea. 
a while like everything yeah. you know it's just oh everything is just all sparky and beautiful and it's like rainbows yeah. but oh, actually yeah that's yeah, yeah praise the lord and then stuff like that but i think that kind of like glosses over a lot of like the realities mm-hmm. yeah, in the spiritual like, bypassing yeah. right exactly yeah. yes exactly that's the word yeah i think like you know we just put like a gloss over everything and everything just seems like so much you know oh like so so positive and everything but it's, it's kind of plastic and fake lah. Uh, you know, I feel like there's a lot of darkness. Actually, that we kind of talked about it, I think, also previously in last week's episode in the David White poem also. Like, you know, like, to confront the darkness, mm-hmm. like, it takes a lot of courage. Right. Yeah, it takes so much courage. And I really like the image also that you were talking about that she has in the poem about the creature that was torn apart, right? Because sometimes we just want to look away from right a lot of this like you know this ugliness right we want just everything to be like super you know perfect right and everything is like you know all in place and you know we want to have our lives together and things like that but there's always going to be that one like torn torn caterpillar or we have like probably many torn caterpillars in our lives right that we can probably identify that um but the fact that you know to look at it with the eyes of faith to look at it with a certain sort of like gentleness i think that's a very beautiful thing the fact that you're not you're not numb. I, I really like what you were saying about like not be like the opioid of the masses, right? It's like not to be numb because it's so easy to be numb, right? These days, mm-hmm. it's like really easy yeah. to just be unfeeling, to detach ourselves from the world, to detach ourselves from the difficulties and the, you know, the, 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 the gray areas and so, right? And just to feel sometimes, to feel things in full measure. Lah. So I think like that, that, that really, I think, struck me, I think, as you were sharing, yeah. But maybe you can also like share us, share with us. I think like what else also like struck you about the mm, Okay, mm, I think another thing that uh, hit me was the part where she likens herself to the child who buries her head in the pillow so as not to see, the child who tells herself that light causes sadness. Because I think um, there's a twofold inversion going on. They're very of two very very Christian images. First of all, the child, right? The child we associate with the Christian call to have childlike faith. But instead, this child is fearful, distrustful, stubborn. Um, and also the reference to light, like we talk so much about. I mean, that's a really fundamental Christian image, right? Uh, and so I thought this was really moving for me because it may, really made me question, like, how many times have I been like this child in the poem, the child that the narrator sees herself as, right? The child who would rather stubbornly wallow in sadness instead of waking up like the friend and recognizing the grace and the courage given to me. So I think that her narrator was a really, really poignant reminder of what a life lived from a place of fear looks like. And I think this poem is always, uh, for me, it's a reminder of how faith can transform us from the fearful narrator to the brave and courageous friend. Yeah. And I was also really struck by the description of the friend as always trying to make something whole, something beautiful, an image capable of life apart from her. And I found this to be such a curious phrase because like, when I reflect on my own faith journey and my own reversion to faith, one of the things that I primarily felt was that without God, my life was meaningless. Like it was just a jumble of shards, like up and down, one day up, next day down. Uh, but I think the one who has faith, uh, your brokenness is redeemed and serves a purpose. Like I don't want to be blithe about somebody suffering and say that like, oh, everybody's crosses happen for a reason. Uh, but I think one thing I thought of was uh, the, uh, the story of Thomas uh, as he doubted Jesus uh, and how he put his hand into Jesus' wound. But for me, the astonishing thing about the story is that Jesus himself was not healed clean of his wound and used that to quell Thomas's doubt. 
So that's what I thought of when I read this line about the friend who's always trying to make something whole. Um, basically, the idea that there's a very, very human impulse to seek meaning out of what happens and how that is met in the Christian belief in a God who, like in St. Paul's letter to the Romans, he says that all things work for the good of those who love him. Yeah. Yeah, thanks a lot, Laura, for sharing I mean, that particular quote from St. Paul. That, was, that really resonated with me as well. And I think as I was looking at the, the, this poem, I think what really struck me was the last line, uh, which is, the love of form is a love of endings. Wow, and that's, mm -hmm. that's a really powerful one. What did you make of that particular line? Actually, I found that line really puzzling, and I don't think I've, I fully understand it. And I don't think I've read enough of her work either to form a worthy, informed comment. But to, if I had to make a guess, um, to look at the lines that precede the ending, uh, these lines are laden with a lot of sensory description, that, like the piercing bird call, the sunset, the glittering rocks, the air cooling. She almost talks about it like a cinematic thing, right? Um, the composition fixed. Uh, I think that when she talks about the love of form, that she means that that is to love things that have a form, things on this side of eternity that you can perceive with your senses. So to love things on this side of eternity is to embrace their ending in a way. And I mean, that's a curious sentiment, first of all, but I see this line as more of like a reconciliation or rather an explanation of why the two are friends despite the seemingly irreconcilable gap in their beliefs. And yet, I mean, despite their differences, they're both able to enjoy the ambiguous peace and beauty of that moment not just in spite of, but maybe precisely because of the different ways in which they access the world. Like you have the friend who hears celestial music versus the narrator who only sees the world as her senses can describe them or as her intellect can reason or define them for her. So like when she describes the snow and the clouds, uh, white business in the trees, and then she says, like brights leaping to a great height. I think that line also stood out to me because it's the one time the narrator's voice breaks away from the literal to jump into the metaphorical. So both of them are able to find beauty in the moment just, just through different prisms. Yeah. And speaking of different prisms, uh, maybe Nicole, you should take us through your David White selection. I'm really curious to hear uh, how you think, what, hear, your, your, hear your thoughts about the poem and how it bears out the notion of perspective and the life of the beloved. Yeah, I'll be happy, I think, to go into David White's poem. Maybe before I, I, I go into the poem itself, maybe I can just read it out, I think, for, for everyone. So, mm -hmm. yeah, the poem that we chose for David White, and I think, I'm, I'm sure we all know from last week, we had one from him already, the unutterable name. And then this one is called Second Sight. So Second Sight by David White. Sometimes you need the ocean light and colours you've never seen before, painted through an evening sky. Sometimes you need your God to be a simple invitation, not a telling word of wisdom. Sometimes you need only the first shyness that comes from being shown things far beyond your understanding so that you can fly and become free by being still and by being still here. And then there are times you need to be brought to ground by touch and touch alone, to know those arms around you and to make your home in the world just by being wanted. To see those eyes looking back at you as I should see you at last, seeing you as you have always wanted to be seen, seeing you as you yourself had always wanted to see the world. Wow. So this one is wow. uh is, is short, is it's beautiful. punchy, but wow. 
there's so much stuff. I love it. Yeah. That's so calming. Right. Yeah, I just feel this sense of acceptance and serenity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I totally yeah, I really feel that. I I really like the even the title uh, of the poem at first, like second mm-hmm. side. Like I yeah, I really kind of set with the idea for a while. It was like second, right? That means there must have been a first side. Right? There was mm-hmm. a second side, that means you saw something at first. And for me, I think it actually I came away with like a lot of different interpretations. Uh so one is like to see something with a different lens. That was my first instinct. But maybe it's also even to see the same thing in a new light or in a new way. And I was thinking, okay, on first sight, like, what do we usually see? We usually are quite blinded or oblivious, right, to the final details. We just see what's in front of us. We just, you know, have tunnel vision, right? But when we look again, and that's when David White goes into the poem, we see all of this, like, colour. We look at the colours that we have never seen before. But actually, it's kind of strange because the colours are always there, right? Like the ocean light always had that color. The evening sky was always that color, but we never really stopped to look at it properly or to give it our full attention, which kind of reminds me of like last week's Mary Oliver poem, right? Mm-hmm. About like to, to, to kind of take things and to really see it, you know, and give it our full attention. And I think as David White goes like deeper into the poem, I think something that really speaks to me is the line, sometimes you need your God to be a simple invitation i like the word simple invitation he's not complex we always like make him out to be this super complex being that we just don't understand and you know like oh god's ways are not always yes it is true <laughs> sometimes we don't really know what's happening and we our idea of god i think also kind of like shifts because i, I see it in celestial music also as well right like the narrator's friend and how she perceives god and god's movement i think in life you know in in, in the world and we always sometimes think of him as like, oh, he's dictating my life. You know, he's, he's just having all this unnecessary control. But over here, I think what David White is saying is that he's just a simple invitation. And to invite means to like welcome. And I also like the idea of the use of the word invitation because it's not imposing. Because when you invite someone, the person can say, yeah, I'm coming to the party. Or no, I'm not coming to the party. So that's I think giving us a glimpse of what God's love is like it's an invitation that like he doesn't ask us like I'm forcing you you know to, to love me and to serve me he says you can love me if you want to if you don't want to you know it's also okay I still love you and I'm like wow oh, dang that is so, that. Yeah. so beautiful so, true. So, so beautiful and so true and I think what I'm really feeling I think from the poem is this this idea of gentleness you know he's a very gentle God he's very loving and he goes on into the next line also about not telling, not a telling word of wisdom. And that really reminds me of like, you know, sometimes people are very prescriptive, right? You know, when they're telling you, oh, you, you should have done this, you know, or, you know, you should have gone down this path or it, it should have gone like this. And like, you know, I mean, we, there's time and place, I think, for that. But there's also time and place of people just kind of like sitting and... Definitely, there's a judgment, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah, you know, just you know, just sit, sit, sit down, you know, sit down and, and don't get ahead of yourself. Uh, I think that's like something that's like really like underrated. And I, I feel like also a lot of David Watt's poem, especially in this one, he always, always likes to talk about flying and becoming free. And I think that can be interpreted in many different ways. You know, like what are we being liberated from? You know, what is shackling us? You know, what is holding us down? But the next line, wow, that was amazing because he talks about by being still and by being here. Wow. By being still and actually, you know, it's not just by being here and by being still here. I think there's so many ways of like 
like unpacking that, like number one, the idea of stillness and by being still right here, which is like the present moment, which is I also think like things that we were talking about in the previous episode, like being present, you know, mentally, emotionally, physically in the moment instead of like getting ahead of ourselves and going to the, I think last week, Laura, you were talking about like the hustle culture, right? Of always doing and doing and doing. But here he's just inviting us to be and he's inviting us to be uh, in terms of what David White says when he says brought to ground by touch and touch alone. That was wow. Like, I mean, there's just so many wow moments, I think, in, 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 in Lewis Gart's poem. And now David White is also giving us all the punches. Brought to ground by touch and touch alone. When we live, I think, disconnected from our bodies and so we feel very detached. We feel like, you know, we're like living a separate existence. And sometimes we feel like we have lost connections. Oh, I don't feel connected uh, anymore. Right. I don't feel connected to this person. I don't feel connected to God. I don't know what's happening with my faith. And that's why we need the loving touch. And just now you were actually talking about Thomas, right? And, you know, kind of putting his hands in his side. And that's also an idea of touch, right? Like he needed hmm. to touch Jesus. Okay. Yeah, he needed to feel Jesus, feel his presence. And sometimes that, that's what we also need, I think, right? Just to be reminded of uh, where he is, I think, in our lives and what, what God has made us for this this idea of touch as an invitation to intimacy a connection right across ourselves and also a connection between us and the divine and no it's not just like that painting where you see like you know the two fingers right <laughs> like touching i know there's a, oh, a almost, proper name almost touching. yeah almost touching. i know there's... of adam right is it yeah, yes, like thank that. you so much. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I can see the mental image, so I'm just like, okay, can't remember <laughs> the exact name, but yes, Laura is, is very right. So I think it's the creation of Adam. And yeah, I think just like a few more like things I think that I took away is the towards the end when he talks about uh to see those eyes looking at you as I should see you as nice, seeing you as you have always wanted to be seen. And that really uh I think hit me more I think than than the rest of the poem because to be seen and known and loved by God is such a beautiful thing especially this quote that's always stuck with me from Timothy Keller which is to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial to be known and not loved is our greatest fear but to be fully known and truly loved is well a lot like being loved by God is what we need more than anything it liberates us from pretense humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. So yeah, that's that's some of my thoughts. Oh, oh yeah, about David White's poem. So yeah, that's that's how I feel. Like how about how about you, Lord? Is there anything also that you've taken away? Yeah, I really love what you said about uh seeing um actually that goes back to the title, right? It's not just about seeing God in the everyday and paying attention, but it's also about letting us ourselves be seen by the divine to be vulnerable before God, to be fully known and truly loved and letting ourselves be loved by God. And that Timothy Keller quote is so good. It's so powerful. Uh, to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. I think that's really beautiful. But I did have one question, like as I was reading the poem, about some of his word choices. I think he's got a lot of curious phrases. And like, for example, um, sometimes you need only the first shyness that comes from being shown things which I think is uh, kind of strange. Like something, I mean, that first shyness is something we conventionally think we have to overcome, not something we think we require. So what, what, what did you make of that phrase? Yeah, I also agree. I think there was like a 
the particular phrase I think like I had to like sit down you know, and kind of think about it because you're right I think the instinct is that for shyness is something that we don't necessarily want or something that we want to overcome but I, I think that that shyness is also like a sort of like pulling back of not knowing everything at first right like you know like to have like complete knowledge is like oh I know what exactly is going to happen you know you know in my life and you know in general but in that particular sentence he says that first shyness that comes from being shown things far beyond your understanding like you know that it's like sort of like the the tree of knowledge which you know more than we need to know at that particular juncture you know to to thirst for that um, when actually a lot of things I think are arguably like a big mystery lah, because we can never fully explain. Um, and that idea of that first shyness, because like first, I, I like actually he uses the word second first in a very interesting way, because like the first shyness is like the initial shyness. Like maybe after that, after you've actually really, you know, become, you know, more aware, right, or kind of like come to certain knowledge about things then you already lose that shyness, that kind of initial innocence. I feel like he's talking about a certain level of like, like innocence, you know, to not really know, know the full uh, breakdown mm. of what's going to happen. But just to have that, you know, that retain that, 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 that innocence, I think. I think for me, that, that's why I kind of took away from that phrase. But, like, but how about you, uh, Laura? How do you also feel about that particular line? Mm, I, think, I think I pretty much agree with you. Although the word that came to mind was vulnerability. I think the being willing to be vulnerable and like you said, put yourself in a position where you don't know and to admit that you don't know. Yeah, I think that, that that's very, that's, that's something I think that a lot of us like really struggle with also to, to kind of say, oh, I don't really know and I don't really know what's going to happen. And I think that really, I think, ties into like, I think some of the takeaways I think that we have in terms of how some of the poems that we've just talked about, like Celestial Music, and uh and second sight like really linked to our relationship with god like what i got from like both poems is this idea of like gentleness i think chiefly from like david white of his you know being drawn to the gentleness of god's loving gaze when he talks about the ocean light the evening sky the simple invitation and i actually also see in celestial music even though you know we have the unfortunately the caterpillar dying in the dirt but the fact that I think that the friend just takes it gently and then sets it down across the road, didn't fling it right across the road, but sets it down gently across the road. It's, just, it's also a little bit like how I think the Lord like, you know, handles us, the Lord like, you know, kind of like invites us, like, you know, like, even though there may be this area of woundedness, but he treats it so gently and he sets it down with such gentleness. And the other, the, the other thing that struck out to me was the fact that both poems also call to a certain level of stillness. Right? I think like in Celestial Music, you, you actually talk about just being still, you know, and it's how it's so peaceful, just sitting here, not speaking, and just, you know, letting everything uh, kind of happen around you. And there's even a specific sentence that says, is this stillness we both love? And then in, in David White, it talks also about that, that stillness of being here and by being still here and I think that's very beautiful instead of racing ahead, just dwelling in the present moment. But maybe Laura, you could also share, I think, how a lot of the these two poems have released, I think, spoke into, you know, like how it relates to God and you know, like what God is and who he is, I think, to to you. Mm, I think I think you've encapsulated it uh, really well. I don't think I've got much more to add to your summary, except that uh, for celestial music, I think the narrator and her friend. 
like I said earlier, really exemplify that difference of one who lives as her beloved. And so uh, I think there's just this Henry Nguyen quote that, we, that I always think of uh, when, in conjunction with this topic. Uh, it's from his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. So it goes, as the beloved of my heavenly father, I can walk in the valley of darkness, no evil would I fear. As the beloved, I can cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out devils. Having received without charge, I can give without charge. As the beloved, I can confront, console, admonish, and encourage without fear of rejection or need for affirmation. As the beloved, I can suffer persecution without desire for revenge and receive praise without using it as proof of my goodness. As the beloved, I can be tortured and killed without ever having to doubt that the love that is given to me is stronger than death. As the beloved, I am free to live and give life, free also to die while giving life. So I think for me, these two poems sort of bear that out in real life. What, is it, what does it look like to live as one who is beloved, who is convinced of their belovedness? Yeah.